0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talisse, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Megan Burke, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Sonoma State University. Their book, When Time Warps, The Lived Experience of Gender, Race, and Sexual Violence, is just out from Minnesota University Press. In When Time Warps, the lived experience of gender, race, and sexual violence, Megan Burke considers the relationship of sexual violence to live time by re-examining and building upon the work of Simone de Beauvoir and in conversation with Judith Butler, Maria Lugones, Maurice merleau ponty and many others. Through developing a feminist phenomenology of time, Burke allows us to consider how racialized colonial sexual domination structures feminine subjectivity. By focusing our attention on temporality, Burke deepens our understanding of how the past haunts the present, giving rise to sexual domination, as well as how we can actualize latent possibilities to lay those ghosts to rest. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Megan. Thanks so much, Sarah. Um, Would you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your background as a philosopher, um, and how your interests led you to write this book?
1: Yeah, sure. Um I have a bit of a kind of wayward um a wayward background, I guess, or wayward into philosophy. I, I as an undergrad um studied English and cultural studies. Um and while there was bits of kind of continental philosophy sprinkled in there, um I honestly the first philosophy class I took the only one I took as an undergrad was an intro class, and I just didn't enjoy it at all. So I found my way into literature and thought that I wanted to um, write queer young adult fiction, and then later found myself in women's and gender studies thinking, oh, maybe I could do policy um, stuff. So I felt myself split and torn in these directions, and then wound up in a feminist theory class taught by a graduate student who at the time was studying with uh, Deborah Bergolfan, who's a Beauvoir scholar. And uh, about a week or two into the course, I found myself kind of knocking on Deborah's door, um, pleading and hoping that she would do an independent study with me uh, because I just kind of fell in love with... um, French feminist thinkers in particular. Um, And so my way into philosophy was really through um, women thinkers and feminist philosophy in particular. And um, I was just fortunate enough to kind of get some of the support I needed from other feminist philosophers to find my way into um, a graduate program in philosophy without little um, formal training um, at the undergraduate level. Um, In terms of my book, I became really interested in thinking about time and sexual violence um, by engaging with classical and feminist phenomenological texts. Um, And in feminist phenomenology, there had been some really rich discussions. Um, There are really rich discussions on the relationship between um, women's existence uh, sexual violence, um, or what I end up calling sexual domination and space um, and the lived experience of space and i I found myself asking, you know what about the temporal dimension since it's such a central kind of theme and and feature of phenomenological considerations of um, subjectivity um, and so this kind of started my kind of thinking around time um but I think I've, as I've kind of meditated on my own preoccupation with time, um, I've realized I, it may go back farther than that. Um, I, as an undergrad studying literature, was really interested in uh, Shakespeare and, in particular, um, The Tempest. And one of my favorite um, lines from that play is What's Past is Prologue. Um, And I have that kind of inscribed on my body in the form of a tattoo. So I I feel like I've carried with me this theme of time um, in ways maybe I wasn't conscious of. And that's been a a motivation in terms of the kind of obsession I think I have at the moment with it. Um, And then in the moment I was thinking about time and gendered embodiment, you know, was at the height of kind of the contemporary kind of student activism around campus rape and just engaging kind of um, that activism on the campus that I was at at University of Oregon, as well as the literature and feminist scholarship on sexual violence and sexual domination, as well as um, just kind of my own ex- personal experience and, and the discussions and conversations I would have with with students in classrooms around um the constraints of being raised as a girl or woman just started to kind of have me kind of piece together these, these things around um, gender time and sexual violence.
0: Yeah. And it's, um, it's really clear in the book, um, how important uh, the past is to what's possible in the present and what happens in the present and through habituation. So it's interesting to hear how much of your past it makes sense Um that you would come to write this book, not that it was foreordained, but you're drawing on Deborah Berghoffen's work. Um, You actually have, I was thinking about the table of contents. You have the past and a prologue. Um, (laughs) That quotation becomes part of your table of contents. Um, So let's jump in then um, about how your project builds on Beauvoir's analysis of feminine existence. That is your prologue, is discussing that work and building your project from there. So will you talk about how feminine existence becomes the foundation for the rest of the the project.
1: Yeah, um you know, I've I mean obviously my work is really motivated by um Beauvoir's description of uh, what she calls feminine existence in The Second Sex and <clears throat> I find it to be such a rich description of normative womanhood, although Beauvoir doesn't put it um, in those terms for us explicitly. Um, I think kind of the insights that we can gain from Beauvoir's account is that what she names feminine existence as, as I read it is this kind of structuring a gendered structuring of existence that, um, is a relative existence. So that's kind of the term that Beauvoir uses. So such that to become a woman is to become a relative kind of being um, in relationship to to men, to a particular man, to kind of man more generally um, as a norm. I think that this is a helpful way to kind of open up questions of... Um, What it means to be a woman, what the experience is to be socialized as a woman, even if one does not kind of self-identify in that way, which is kind of something I try to point to in the book. That for think a Beauvoirian account of feminine existence, this isn't something that one always willingly takes up by themselves. Though Beauvoir will say, you know, one is made and makes herself um, in this way. Um, so I you know my project kind of builds on this discussion of becoming a relative existence and um how how this is named and marked um as woman and how this comes to situate oneself in the world um i I find that there's a lot of rich ways to take that, though I'm very aware that um as many scholars have pointed out, Beauvoir's work really has some absences and gaps. And so I think one of the things that I'm trying to do is kind of think about those absences and gaps, particularly around race, particularly as kind of how can we historicize and make concrete what it means to be a feminine existence today and what histories those draw on. Um, And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. And then one of the other things I'm trying to do with her work is you know, Beauvoir makes a claim that the kind of social destiny of becoming a woman is really kind of realized in in marriage. um, And that there's this particular kind of, you know, heterosexualized structure of feminine existence. And as I'm thinking as a Beauvoirian does, like, given the changing historical social conditions, you know, and, and knowing that marriage isn't necessarily the only social destiny to becoming a woman today. You know, I started asking myself, well, what is, how do we make sense of those shifts? You know, what way would, what, what, in what way can we talk about becoming a woman in this kind of way? And for me, um, the constellation of, you know, various practices of um, sexual domination or, you know, histories and legacies of sexual violence, realities of rape and sexual violence and so forth, are those things that produce a relative existence. So I kind of trying to tease out her discussions of, you know, what I read as a kind of heterosexism that is latent and underlies the structuring of becoming a woman that need not be enforced by the social destiny of marriage, but in our current context, we can make sense of this in a in a really rich way, I think, by looking at this persistence um, of various practices of, of sexual domination. So I'm trying to kind of tease out some of these things that Beauvoir opens for us um, by drawing on this concept and trying to think about the absences and gaps and and then also kind of use it as a, a lens and a vehicle to kind of make sense of the world kind of we are rooted in um, in the moment.
0: Yeah, and it's you really bring attention to the temporal nature of of Beauvoir's analysis. This was part that I found really helpful in rethinking Beauvoir. Um, it She, temporality, particularly in the second volume, comes up quite a lot Um, but I think you, you note, it's not as thematized as it could be. You do a lot of that thematization for us. Um, and you call, and out of that, you call sexual domination a temporal harm. Um, and so will you explain that for us? Will you talk about, um, how sexual domination works as temporal harm?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great question. Um, I think for me, yeah, it's evident for me that for Beauvoir, the kind of institution of this kind of becoming the making and being made a feminine existence really has a temporal structure. Beauvoir talks about it um, as ruptures with the past, as breaks with the past, um, and that this is a a kind of a, a harm in itself because what those ruptures do is it severs Um, particularly for Beauvoir, the girl, it severs the girl from transcendence, just this capacity um, for freedom and starts to anchor her. um, That is the girl who's becoming this woman um, into a, a passive present, which Beauvoir kind of will talk about as a waiting that she just gets stuck, kind of frozen in time is some other language that Beauvoir will use. So I started to really just hone in on what was happening in those ruptures in time and how it kind of froze um it collapsed the open structure, which is the language that you know phenomenologists will use this open structure of time where um it's not linear in the sense that the past, present, and future flow seamlessly, but that the possibility um of a future exists um in in a certain open kind of way and so I started to really think about that um, that severing that would happen that would be, that would become the temporal kind of um, structure of, a f- of feminine existence and so one of my tasks was to tease out that um, that temporal structure of feminine existence to suggest that while we can think about kind of the lived experience of space essential uh, central to becoming and being situated in the world as a woman. Um, there's also this other really tacit operation that happens in terms of how we um, live time and our relationship to time is part of this being made and, and making ourselves um, in this kind of way. I think in Beauvoir's volume two, as she's describing the lived experience of these ruptures, for me, um, it's clear that a central part of that um, rupturing is a certain kind of sexualized practices and relations that become more present and pervasive in girls lives and and those are all kind of heterosexist practices in which a girl is situated as prey and is like encouraged to become and to make herself prey to men um and this is all a part of this kind of rupturing that occurs and so this is how Beauvoir kind of accounts for it. And I, I started to think about what that could you know, highlight for us um, about our contemporary moment we find ourselves in.
0: Yeah, and one of the ways you really push Beauvoir is through this engagement with Maria Lugones' work. Um, and this, you talked about that Beauvoir is not particularly good on thinking about race. And so Lugones, you take from um, Lugones' work the colonial distinction um, of, of sex and gender, to read sex and gender as a as a distinction set up through colonization, and as a technique of colonization, and the harm that results, then you talk about it as a temporal amputation for people who are colonized. Um, so we walk us through that the way, first, Lugonis' distinction, and then how you I really see you connecting it to what Beauvoir is doing through this temporal analysis, through how this harm is a, a temporal harm.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think I was reading Lugones alongside Beauvoir, and so I I started to try to read them in relationship to one another. And you know, I I find what Lugones is doing with the sex gender distinction as this colonial operation to be really interesting and, and important to how we understand this the colonial project of, of women as the social position. And so what I do in, in the book is think about what Lagonus is suggesting, which is that um, colonized females are are not women and precisely because um, to be colonized is to be kind of tethered to this distinction of sex, to be marked as sex, to be marked as female. And so there's kind of this severing from gender. Um, and although Beauvoir doesn't use the word gender at all, um, I began to think about how gender is the kind of normative category of um, you know, and and trying to make sense of feminine existence as this normative category, and given other discussions of temporality um, in Latin American philosophy, in particular those of Walter Mignolo and um, Enrique Dussel and so forth, um, I began to try to think about the past future distinction and the, uh, the future as the kind of time of modernity and thinking about that as Lagones, I think, suggests that, well, gender is, is in modernity and sex is elsewhere. Um, and I began to kind of think, well, where, where is sex then in in terms of kind of time? Um, and given that there's this rich discussion of kind of the civilizing project, um, of gender that Lagones has, um, I started to kind of think about this sex gender distinction as Lugones frames it as a, as a past future distinction. And so that the sex gender distinction as a colonial project, um, operates to cut off or amputate colonized from the future. And I, I read gender as a function of that. So if kind of we follow Lugones and, and there may, um, yeah if we follow Lagonis in this way, um you know, as she kind of describes the the colonial modern gender system, then it would be to say that um those who are marked as sex um are are cut off are severed from the future, so it's kind of started to think about it through Beauvoir's language and suggest that they're literally their their time their sense of time is Is amputated. So again, another closing down um, of this open structure of
0: time. Yeah. Um, And that discussion, that bringing together of Lukonas and um, Beauvoir, it was interesting because the next chapter you move on to the myth of the black male rapist, and it was an interesting setup just to bring us back to an analysis that um, black feminist scholars have been doing you know, at least since Angela Davis in the, in, was that 1980 of the myth of the black male rapist, but how, um, that myth gets then wrapped into the myth of stranger rape and works in the background of the myth of stranger rape. Um, and so it was interesting, those two chapters on the past really, I think enliven, really give insight into how the past is operating, um, in the present through forms of like this temporal amputation that you just described, and then the way a seemingly race neutral myth, that of stranger rape, is actually doing really important work um, to to uphold racist notions of harm and of of sexual domination um, and so so will you? uh how did how did the myth of the black male rapist transform into the myth of stranger rape? How does that operate in that in the background for that myth?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think in connection to the kind of chapter we just discussed on Lagones, i I started to think about how how this distinction this colonial distinction is kind of made and instituted and embodied um today, and I, because I'm thinking in, in terms of sexual domination, I began to kind of think about, about rape myths and how they are very kind of powerful motivators of embodiment, kind of how we comport ourselves, um, you know, particularly when one is socialized or, or possibly subjected to potential forms of sexual violence. Um, and although Angela Davis is of course, you know, we have one of the first academic accounts of this, there are, you know, preceding um, scholarship, particularly journalism, on the, the legacy and the production of the myth of the black male rapist in American life as this powerful motivator for white supremacy and also for kind of this mode of gendered embodiment of like the white male protector and the white kind of female victim. And so I began to kind of wonder, given how prominent the myth of stranger rape is, which is, really something that I began to be preoccupied with while teaching a bunch of uh, gender and women's studies classes and and talking about um and this myth and talking through its operation in the daily lives of the students in my class, um, you know, it was clearly seemed so racialized to me, but also I was so confounded that um this connection hadn't been teased out. So I think that was one of the tasks of this discussion was to make sense of that. And the, the claim that I make is that the myth of stranger rape is really just is a is the racialized myth. I say they're the same myth, but it's just emptied of all the explicitly, racialized and racist content. Um, so that the stranger, um, because of the history um, of the myth of the black male rapist and the way that stranger is coded as racialized, that the stranger is always kind of read as the the man of color, the, the black male rapist anyway. So if, like in the predominant real rape script narrative the rapist is is imagined as this dark figure jumping out from behind the bushes and in a dark moment you know in in the day um, and so it's very clearly all shrouded in blackness um, and strangeness and the history of strangeness in the context of the united states is fundamentally entangled um, with race and so i kind of you know, draw on Roland Barthes' account of mythology to kind of think about the way myths function best when their overtly um, political content is kind of emptied out from it. And so that over time, one of the functions of, you know, the temporal dynamic of white supremacy, I think we see this clearly in lots of different, you know, scholarly discussions today that the function is to kind of, conceal the overt racism. Um, And this is a way to kind of perpetuate normative ideology. For me, um, in terms of thinking about this phenomenologically, I I really wanted to think about how this was lived, how this kind of racialized but emptied of its overt racism, how this myth came to be lived out in embodiment, and and how this... like realize the normative feminine existence of white female subjectivity.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It, you shed new light on part of what, um, for instance, Ida B. Wells was up against in doing her reporting on lynching, um, that she's, she presents all these numbers and she makes this um, really strong case that lynching has nothing to do with, um, with rape, that it's about um, terrorizing Black people. Uh, and your analysis of the way mythology becomes embodied, I think, really sh- then shows us in a new way what she's up against, right? She's trying to present these numbers. She's trying to present these facts. And again and again, white women's um, organizations turn away from her call to work with with her organizations um, to end lynching. And you, this analysis um, what you're going to call in conversation with Merleau-Ponty the sort of anonymous habit of gender, um, she's up against that, right? And so she can keep saying she can keep doing her beautiful and, and um, well argued analysis, but it's she's up against these sort of embodied habits of gender. Um, and so so how does how does gender become anonymous habit? This is you, again, you take this from Merleau-Ponty. Um, Will you talk about that process or what that phenomenology is? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, just to kind of reiterate on what you're saying about Wells and what you know she was up against in her work, um, I think one of the things that I'm trying to draw attention to is the kind of operation of the norm in lived experience. So kind of focusing on white subjectivity, not just for the sake of bringing more attention to it, but to think about the ways in which these normative violent histories become entrenched in our embodiment in ways that we are unaware of, um, and how this, um, and how the project of gender becomes this kind of life sentence in, in regards to these histories and legacies of violence that we get kind of anchored and tethered in them, um, And so Merleau-Ponty's notion of anonymity became a really helpful way to um, kind of think through the temporal function of, of that kind of being unaware, you know, how, how do we become unaware and and how is like, how is the past operating in the present to make us so unaware? Um, And I I had this personal moment while writing the book, where, as somebody assigned and socialized, um, girl and 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 white girl in particular, and encouraged to become um, a a woman, and, and particularly a, a white woman, and living my life in various ways to resist and reject and make sense of what that has done to me. I began to think about all these moments I had in my life where, you know, as somebody who was a, you know, a really competitive athlete growing up, being told, you know, don't run at night, don't run at night, mm. um, you know, don't do this at night. You know, definitely, you know, it was always a lot around don't like go running at night. And part of, I think, my interest in, uh, feminist philosophy was that it was one of the first places that opened up for me a way to make sense of all that was happening to me um, and to untangle untangle that and to kind of reckon with um, what I had been made into and what I, I was making myself into. And then, of course, a future question, what I wanted to make myself into, who I who I wanted to become in relationship to these things. And so even while writing the book, I had this moment, and this is of many years after it complicated and rejected and negotiated this assignment I had been given. Um, I was running at night and I found myself just in my mind, I didn't do it, but found myself like, feeling a little freaked out that maybe there was someone behind me. And I just was laughing to myself, honestly, knowing the statistics and possibilities of, of rape and, and sexual violence that, that, that wasn't likely to happen. And so I, I just kept thinking, well, if I'm having this experience as somebody who's, you know, really immersed in, in thinking about what's going on here, um, what's, what's that mean about other people? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. what's, what's going on. And um, Merleau-Ponty's notion of anonymity as this pastness, this kind of immemorial pastness that flows into our present through senses, um, through kind of embodied life um, at this pre-reflective level. So in the ways that we are unaware helped me Um, begin to, to think through what was happening in those moments. Um, And, and that this is a kind of habit that while even when we can undergo practices to get a, to get a hold of, it can kind of seep in, in our lives in this invisible layer. Um, And so While I think about feminine existence more generally and not just kind of one's personal reckoning with it, I think that it's simultaneously visible, like the norm is visible in so many explicit ways. And yet the way that it operates is to kind of make itself invisible to the eye or to the self, Um, And so one experiences, one becomes the woman as waiting, um, anchored in this present waiting for sexual violence, the kind of, which is not really how it's going to happen, but the waiting for this stranger to appear um, is kind of all operating anonymously or at this pre-reflective level. And when we don't kind of, when we can't reckon with it, then we just experience Um, gender as me, as kind of my natural self. So in some way, I'm building on and trying to kind of extend in another direction, the, you know, very classic feminist insight that gender is naturalized and not natural. Um, But I think the thing that I'm specifically trying to do with anonymity is to think about the way that process of naturalization is a particular temporal process of how the past um, flows anonymously or kind of um, pre-reflectively into and through me um, to produce a certain relation to time.
0: Yeah. And your example is really helpful there or really, um, uh, really puts your finger on that phenomenon because you're saying the fear just arises, right? You're running. The fear just arises. It is just a part of you, um, and so there's a way in which it just seems to come from nowhere. But what your book is showing is, no, it comes, it comes from the past into the present to create a a present of fearing as feminine existence, right? That feminine existence has fear really built into it through this work of myth and through the work of these norms um, that are bringing forward pieces of the past such that you can just be running and suddenly it feels like it wells up naturally inside you, that fear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is, you know, that's such a nice way to put it that, you know, and I, I think it's interesting. I shared, you know, this account with students I had, um, when I was teaching at Oklahoma state and, you know, I had young cis women students tell me that, you know, they wouldn't like after a certain time at night, they wouldn't leave their house or they wouldn't leave their dorm room. And I just kept thinking of the kind of temporal prison or Beauvoir will call like the temporal cage that is shrouds, um, feminine existence. And I just kept thinking about that, that this seemed just a part of their lives to them. Like, you know, they knew that it was kind of messed up, but it just seemed like it was what their destiny was, their social destiny in some way. And, you know, I think part of what I'm trying to do as you're saying is showing like, you no, this comes from somewhere. And, um, the feelings that we have around it that feel like they just arise naturally are also coming from somewhere and trying to reckon with how to make sense of it and also how to undo it as a a part of the kind of resistance to this certain normative gendered project that one can be kind of sentenced to, which is a kind of confinement and violence in itself, but it also perpetuates so much violence to others, to um, other gender minorities, to colonized peoples and so forth, so that we just all get entangled in this really kind of this normative web that's super harmful in, in various ways and depths to different people.
0: Right, because that fear then can get organized around politically in ways that, does not address actually where it's coming from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because the fear is, is like, I would always say, well, you should be more fearful of being at home, right. Or you should be more fearful of being with people that you know. Um, And so, I mean, I think we can see this in contemporary discussions of um, anti-Black violence and, and immigration that we, the projected fear is on the stranger. And so, you kind of begin to live this gendered project um, in ways that mobilize and bolster that kind of white supremacist violence um, and ideology of the stranger. And so it's just this big entangled uh, mess and um, the anonymous dimension of that at the very individual lived level is that, that kind of seemingly that well of fear that uprises that just seems like it's right with you is really this kind of, in sedimentation of these really kind of nefarious legacies of, of violence.
0: Yeah. I have to say another area where I see this and have a lot of conversations is about harm to children. Uh, And people are really attuned to stranger danger when it comes to, to children. Um, And it's, it's hard to say, well, actually the people most dangerous to children are the people they live with. Um, And particularly like biological parents are, far and away, uh, statistically, the most dangerous people to children. Um, And it's like, that's a hard thing to say to other people. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't, saying it, as you point out, doesn't actually do the work of, of, um, of changing how that fear can be embodied, right? Like, I'm afraid of the person on the street who might grab and harm my child. Um, And you talk about um, you talk about this structure of fear as spectral. Um, you're talking about the threat of rape um, and, and the threat of this kind of sexual violence. And you call it spectral, I think, to get at that, that it there's a way in which it's a ghost that walks among us. Um, and so, so will you talk about that analysis of spectrality?
1: Sure. Yeah, there's, you know similar to the other kind of dimensions of the book the the discussion and way i mobilize spectrality is um you know influenced from a variety of of discussions including kind of Judith Butler and Jacques Derrida's accounts of discussion uh, of spectrality kind of queer accounts of spectrality and some contemporary sociology that kind of you know harnesses this concept in certain ways and um particularly in feminist scholarship, spectrality is is discussed as this kind of organizing mechanism that it's a certain kind of operation of fear that you know constitutes the norm um that it's like you know you know the the outside that's inside is really kind of the butlerian way to put it um but I you know was really thinking about the way that kind of Rape haunts in the same way that, say, Butler argues that kind of the abject haunt, the, the norm of gender, the kind of dyad of the masculine man and, and feminine woman. And thinking about the kind of way that that the fear of rape circulates um, as a kind of haunting that you are, you know, if you are assigned and socialized girl Um, you are told all these cautionary tales, even if not explicitly by parents, um, they kind of circulate in one's environment to constitute a certain mood. Um, and for me, that mood is haunting. You like constantly feel like you're going to be haunted by this possibility of what could happen to you, um, and so the kind of rape as a specter is really to to draw attention to the haunting and that's central to the haunting. And I think this is the connection between the other discussions of spectrality is that it's productive. The haunting is what produces and constitutes the kind of norm. And for me, the normative embodiment. So if you are, if you feel like, or, you know, this, this haunting of rape, you you comport and move and, and live in different ways than if you were not haunted by this possibility. Um, and so I kind of think about spectrality as the present absence um, that kind of circulates, right? It's, it's very much here, but it's also not here. It's what could be, it's what's not yet. Um, and that is a certain temporal relation to one's future um, as possible as both impossible and then possible in this most horrific kind of way. Um, and so I think of rape as operating in that way it's it's the fear that's most powerful of course that's not to suggest that experiences of rape are not powerful and, and normatively productive in their own way but trying to kind of think about what it is to experience that fear as so present and prevalent yet, it's just a fear. It's just fear, and um, to think about that, it's a present absence. It's not here um, yet, and it's the yet that is is what I'm trying to kind of tend to, um, as it relates to becoming a feminine existence and being anchored in this waiting. You're just waiting for rape, um, living your life in this waiting. I think is precisely kind of the insight Beauvoir um, highlights, though not in this way, about feminine existence
0: yeah and so you talk about being able to do this feminist ghost busting as a way of interrupting that structure of waiting of a way of being um out of normative time or being you talk about it as being untimely um and I was thinking about just in that answer too um that the ex- the experience of sexual harms, the experience of rape is actually nested in this spectral um Experience, right? And so the waiting experiences of harm being already nested in a structure of waiting. So, will you talk then about this ghost busting, about this way of being able to interrupt that that larger context in which um, sexual harms happen? That larger context of what you call sexual domination.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, the. I, I want to give just some credit where it's due to the ghost busting term comes from a really dear friend of mine. who was helping me think through um, this, you know, this discussion of like, you know, well, what we need to do with these ghosts are kind of bust them out of their, their, their present absence, right? Like the, the, the problem here is that it's, is the temporal, is their temporal structure themselves. So we kind of need to, Raise them up um, and make them in some way tangible, so we can we can reckon with them, so this goes back to like the myths right if we don't understand what the myths are and how they're operating and and how these structures are um, working through us at very intimate personal ways, then um the the kind of haunting kind of continues, and so part of the the ghost busting is to interrupt the temporal structure of spectrality itself, um, and so that that would mean to do that that we, you know, as a kind of political practice, as an in, uh, even to think of our embodiment as this political project itself um, would be that we need these we need some interruptive practices to the persistence of how these things temporally move um, in our world. The, the tricky and troubling part here, of course, is that to go back to the point about anonymity that these things are not easy to get hold of um and so because they are operating in some other layer of our of our life, not at this conscious layer. Um, But as I discuss in the book, I think that that we do see some of these ghost-busting projects. Um, The one I talk about in particular is Emma Solkowitz's Carry the Mattress campaign as an attempt to... um, Bring some visibility to the persistence, and of course, this is about a, a particular survivor experience um, to bring attention to the invisible layer of campus life. Right, the paradox that this is supposed to be this place of freedom for young women. Like, look, there's a space you can now occupy that you know you've always, like historically has always had all these limitations to it, but. But now um, there's this place of freedom and opportunity, except for this haunting of rape that happens on college campuses, that the majority of cis women who, who find themselves on campus have this, this fear with them all of the time about what could ha- happen to them if they walk across campus at night by themselves or so forth. Um, and so part of the ghost busting practices um, are to try to interrupt, you know, these the the constitution of of waiting, um, and so yeah, I I try to kind of think about the practices that we that do exist, um, and kind of think about what they're doing to interrupt
0: the temporal dynamic of the haunting. Yeah, and you talk about this as as thinking about how we do time, um, and I know part of that analysis is coming from Lisa Gunther's work on solitary confinement. And I think, you know, imprisonment is a place we talk easily about people doing time. Um, and that you make a connection then to feminine existence and how to interrupt the doing time as feminine existence. Um, and and that the mattress campaign, the um, that piece at Columbia that, I mean, it was a piece and a protest, right? It was art and protest together. Um, it's you, Rach. That's a doing that she does over time and with friends. But will you talk a little bit more about doing time?
1: Yeah, I think I find Gunther's analysis and in, um, in her work of doing time to be um, have some really interesting resonances with Beauvoir's discussions of these like protests that women um, who have kind of become a feminine existence try to undertake to re recover or reclaim their time. Um, and although I think Beauvoir has a pessimistic view on, on this, there is nonetheless this dimension. Um, I think that resonates with what Gunther, Gunther is talking about, um, about incarcerated people who do various things like letter writing or, you know, projects that give them a sense of, of time that's been stolen um, from them because of incarceration and particularly solitary confinement, the the intention there um, to steal time in such a way that one no longer exists. Um, and I, although I I think this is far more um, severe than say it is a far more severe case and an intensified case than Beauvoir gives in her analysis of, say, the housewife. I by no means want to say they're the same. Um, I think that we can can see that when one's existence is structured in, in some way that closes off time, one needs to find efforts and ways to, to do time. And, and in this way, I think what Gunther is pointing out is ways that open up again in some way time for them. Um, I don't think this is easy. Um, and by no means to suggest that it's up to only up to people who are, are sentenced in a particular way to, um, to, to fix everything. But, but I think what Gunther's analysis shows, and which I want to suggest is important for those, um, who live this life sentence of feminine existence to undo the harm is to engage in practices with the self and with others that, um, try to restructure and reorient time. So as to interrupt kind of the
0: normative temporality, um, and violence that, that comes with it. Yeah. It's striking how many of these responses are aesthetic are works of art, um, writing. Yeah. Um, so the you have an epigraph for part three, and part three is the future. The epigraph is from Maxine Waters, and it reads, "Reclaiming my time. What he failed to tell you was, when you're on my time, I can reclaim it." Um, and I was, will you talk about why you chose that epigraph for that section of the book for the future?
1: Yes. Um, so again, this was something that was pointed out to me in the review process of why isn't this quote in this book? <laughs> and oh, <interesting>. okay. <laughs> and yeah. I, when I read that, I was like, yeah, why isn't that in this book? Because I remember watching um, Waters say this and just having my, like, you know, having just like this little explosion of joy inside, because I think it's precisely something I'm talking about. So it wasn't in the book until, and I think this is the joy of having wonderful um, readers <laughs> before it goes to publication, um, that that was something that needed to be in there, because I think it is precisely what I'm, I'm trying to say about doing time. What I What I think is so great about that moment is that in that moment, that is as I read it, Waters is doing time in this way to interrupt these normative processes. Um, and all, of course, Waters is is situated in a particular way and in ways that are different for me and different from other gendered people. But I think what Waters is is showing and speaking very specifically to is that, you know, having one's time interrupted is central to, to domination. And so um, I I use that to kind of open up the end chapter, which is really talking about the significance of a politics of lived time, that part of what um, we need to be thinking about and um, is, is at the level of embodiment that there's this whole kind of aesthetic political project that we need to think about in terms of how we're living time. So what, what is so great about waters, which I I knew, but of course had this gap of having it not initially included, was that that moment of saying, I'm reclaiming my time. It's all about this interruption and this refusal to have um, one's time stolen from her. Um, and so that is a part of where I gesture to in the end chapter is that Um, Feminist projects in particular, whether they are kind of more mainstream popular ones like um, the Times Up campaign, which, of course, is all about time, um, or, you know, those of us working kind of in the academic, intellectual or even in the kind of artistic aesthetic, you know, modes need to think about ways to reclaim time since it is kind of this thing that's been stolen and closed down. Um, and that's a part of the kind of interruptive politics that are needed.
0: Yeah. And she's so ready in that moment. Uh, like that analysis is just so avail. She's so able to reclaim in that moment um, because she's, she's re- really got the analysis ready, right? Like she's really prepared to respond to that interruption. Yeah. Um well, so, what are you working on now? um that's a great question i feel i do
1: have i feel like I have a lot of projects swirling in my mind, but there's kind of two that are um pressing at the moment um one is a more i would say public philosophy project i am really trying to find ways to and this would be in a book form open up and make possible, um, feminist discussions, um, around the human condition for, you know, people who aren't going to show up in a feminist philosophy class. Um, and I think that's part of this interruptive practice that, you know, one of the things I think most of us who do this kind of work might know or think about is that, um, there's just not a lot of access to the things that we're reading. And so I think part of what I'm trying to think about is other ways to open up these conversations. Um, And this really comes from, you know, I think rooted in in teaching in the classroom and that it's, you know, this might be the only moment I often say that to students I teach where you ever sit to think about this stuff. Um, And so I, I think a motivation I have is to try to find other ways to open up, so it's not the only moment, um, and ways to kind of get work out um, that opens up, you know, feminist philosophical and feminist scholarship um, uh, in other in another kind of mode. Um, so that's kind of vague, but it's just a way to say that I'm I'm interested in in trying to open up this conversation um, in another medium, and so right now I'm trying to engage. Um, discussions on heterosexism and compulsory mm. heterosexuality to try to tell and write to kind of an account a kind of perhaps an intellectual history of, of, of these terms and the debates and um, the questions they open up, um, for a general audience. I think this relates to the kind of the project of, of the book. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing, which I think stems more specifically from the book, um, as I'm at the end of the book, I found myself thinking a lot about possibility and constraint, and in particular around the I think conversations around self determination in relationship to gender. Like, and I found myself asking, as as a Bavorian, who can I become and who can we become? Like, how are we constrained, and and what are the possibilities for becoming? And so, those questions I want to explore kind of at the intersection of feminist, queer, and trans philosophy, um, really thinking about more about this question of becoming of coming and um, the question of possibility.
0: Yeah. And if you, are you familiar with um, Leanne Simpson's work? She's an Indigenous scholar who talks about gender as self-determination as well.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, yes. I love, yes, I very much love her
0: discussions there. Cool. Okay. Well, um, these are very exciting projects and I look forward to, to reading them and talking with you about them. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for your time today, Megan.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.